Millad, and welcome to Wiser Conversations, a podcast that features women in science, entrepreneurship, and research. Joining me today is Dr. Jennifer Silva, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Biomedical Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis, Director of Pediatric Electrophysiology at St. Louis Children's Hospital, and Founder and Chief Medical Officer at Centiar. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into talking about your career and your company, can you give us an update on what is happening at the Washington University Medical Campus since the coronavirus pandemic hit? I know that labs were at a standstill, as were many clinical trials. Are activities getting back to normal? Activities are slowly starting to resume in a very careful and cautious manner on campus. Uh, I think that the school has taken an appropriate and slow approach to how to reopen the campus, and they're being very deliberate about it with really trying to keep everybody's safety in mind. So specifically the medical school, which I feel like I can talk to a little with a little bit more experience since that's the campus that I'm based on. The medical school has started opening up. So research facilities are starting to open. Um, importantly, we're starting to ramp up the clinical operations. So we're having, we're now starting to do elective procedures again, and we're seeing the numbers increase on that slowly and steadily. We're also seeing the number of clinic patients starting to come back. But I think this is a this is a joint experience, right? As as ready as we are to see patients, patients have to be ready to come out of their houses and step into a hospital, and that can be a daunting task. So I think that slowly we're starting to see things get back to, to normalcy. What we've seen on the clinical trials perspective is that we are, as you well know, in the midst of the, of the, the at the height of the COVID um, pandemic in St. Louis, we had really stopped engaging in non-COVID related research. And we're also seeing that that is now starting to pick back up again in a, in a steady and slow fashion. So I imagine that as with most people around the country, we're watching to see what the numbers do. We're watching to see how the virus responds and we'll try to be, um, try to be just a few steps ahead of it. Yeah. Well, thanks to you and all of the healthcare workers who have all been on the front line. Thank you so much. Um, so let's get right into how you became a physician and what influences in your life growing up helped you make that decision. Sure. Well, that's, that's so easy. I come from a family um, that's always valued education and taking care of your community. And so as you know, my parents were both born and raised in India and emigrated to the United States after they were done with college for their advanced degrees. So growing up as a first generation American, I would spend a lot of time traveling back and forth between India for some, when we were on summer vacation and then spending the school year here. And most of my family in India were physicians. They were doctors. And they were, they were amazing because they, they not only were advancing their science in a very thoughtful and resource-limited country in a very thoughtful way, but 
they were also simultaneously taking care of their communities. And it was watching um, particularly my grandfather as he, I remember the day he um, acquired the first MRI machine, it was the first MRI machine in India. And it was like a kid on Christmas morning. It was his brand new toy. And we just happened to be there and he's like, Jen, you have to come and see this. And he brought me down to this new building that's built a whole building for this MRI machine. Um, and it was his brand new toy. Look what we can do with this. And at night, he would run the MRI machine for the people that couldn't afford to get MRIs but needed them. During the day, he would run it for patients that could afford it. But he was very intentional about making sure that this amazing technology that he was able to bring was accessible to everybody and managed to figure out a way to do it. And he continually inspired not just me, my brother and all of our cousins. I think all except one of us went into, med went into medicine. And I think we can probably all directly trace it back to him. That is a great, great story. And so was your grandfather a cardiologist? He was not, he was, a, he was an internist. He was an internal medicine physician. He was an incredibly humble person. If you, if you ever as a family member went to him and said, oh, I have this hurts and this hurts, he would say, go talk to his wife because she's the one who really takes care of people. I just get all the glory, he would say. She's the one who takes care of people. And he was, he was amazing. He, um, he ran a hospital. He did all of these things. He was, he was actually the physician to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton went to India and got sick and was invited to the White House. And he never, it never phased him. It never changed who he was. He was always a person that was there to take care of the people who lived on the streets of Bombay or Mumbai. Mm. So how did you decide to become a cardiologist? That was, it was never my original intention. And, and in fact, as you mentioned, I'm a pediatric cardiologist. I had, I had every intention of practicing pediatric medicine. Um, I think that the honesty of children and their vulnerability was a huge draw. There's, there's something so incredibly gratifying talking to children. And so I knew that that was my path. Cardiology was an unexpected love that sort of emerged in medical school. And what I loved about it was how, how much it made sense. If you just, you couldn't memorize it. You couldn't commit it to just always following a certain path. Every, every lesion, every patient with that lesion had a slightly different course. And so it mandated, it requires people who do it to understand just generally how things should work but then to deeply understand how it's working in this unique individual, in this unique patient. And, and it was hard. And so between those two things, I was just incredibly drawn to it. And I remember my grandfather like, how you can't take care of lots of people doing this. <laughs> <laughs> you can only take care of this small group of people. And I said, yes, but I'll do it well. It sounds like, so I was going to ask if you have, if, if mentoring is important, did you have a mentor? And obviously your grandparents were mentors. Were there other people that really influenced you in um, medical school? And do you feel like there are more challenges for female physicians or, or, or females who are in medical school? 
I, there, there certainly are a unique set of challenges. I think there are more challenges in addition to them being unique. I think that finding, and it's never just a single mentor, right? I, I like to think of mentors and sponsors, both of them, as a team. You're going to need different people on your team at different parts, points in your career. So the decision to go into medicine and to go into pediatrics, I can easily trace back right, to a very a small group of people. But once I got there, there were all different kinds of people who inspired me. And I have to say, some of the, some of the strongest women that I met uh, in pediatrics and pediatric cardiology and in medicine in general were probably some of the most formative people that I met. And the reason was, it's hard to envision your career when you can't see it, right? And I think a lot of people talk about this. And so watching women be incredibly successful and incredibly good at what they do allowed me to sort of have that, that same kind of aspirational hope that I too could achieve all of these, these things, the height of my career. I could be at the height of pediatric cardiology or pediatric electrophysiology, whatever it was. Now, I, I, I can specifically go back and as I think back through who those people were, I think that those women worked harder than their counterparts. I know that my course has been easier because I stand on their shoulders. I'm incredibly grateful to them. And I think it's my generation's job to do the same for my daughter's generation. Whatever she chooses to do, may it be that much easier because she gets to stand on somebody else's shoulders to do it. Okay, so you're not only an accomplished cardiologist, but you're an entrepreneur. So what motivated you to start your own business? Right, so that was, that was also unexpected. I never set out to become an entrepreneur. I, like I said, I set out to become a pediatrician. I think as I, as I sort of went through my career, the one of the aspects that intrigued me was this notion of technology and how we can use technology to better take care of our patients. And so I grew up in a very, and I say grew up, I, like literally I grew up as a young child believing in this philosophy that physicians practice medicine and we see patients and we take care of one patient at a time. And that is how we do better for our community. That is how I give back. I take care of people. And that was, I, that was demonstrated by the people that I admired and looked up to. And as I started exploring this other aspect, this notion of research and technology and how this all plays together with medicine, I realized that there were things that I can do to amplify my one-on-one -on -one interactions with patients. Don't get me wrong. I love my patients. I love clinic days. Um, I love procedure days because I like talking to them. I like learning from them. I like, I feed off of that. But the ability to develop technologies that are going to empower hundreds of cardiologists to take care of better care of their thousands of patients amplifies my ability as a single person to leave my mark on medicine. And so entrepreneurship, became, it was at first this, you know, this very um, 
this sort of battle that I was thinking about. And I think we talk about this in academia a lot, right? Are you a purist? Are you an academician? Or are you going to the dark side of industry and entrepreneurship? And I was really torn about it when we first started. And the more I started thinking about it, the, the more I don't think that they're this, um, you know, the, the, they're not the angel and devil sitting on my shoulders. They're actually the same thing. Um, just encouraging me in a different way. Well, it's amazing. So the mission, okay, your, the mission is of the company is to transform the experience for both patient and clinician mm -hmm. in these procedures with a 3D augmented reality platform. Can you explain how this works? And I will encourage everyone listening to this to go onto your website to see the video of you manipulating the hologram was, it's still hard to get my mind around. It was amazing. One of the critical differences between this headset, which is a augmented reality or mixed reality headset and virtual reality is that virtual reality is totally immersive, which means that once you put on the headset, you can't see anything around you. So it's great for things like gaming, right? Not great for things like doing surgery on a patient. So the first difference that people note when they put the headset on is they can see right through it, right? And that was one of those technologic hurdles that when Microsoft overcame, started putting those bricks together, those pieces together in, in Jonathan's mind. So once you see that, what we do is we take the data that's being acquired through some of the current systems and currently what those systems do is they take the three-dimensional data and they squash it so that they can display it on a screen, just a regular monitor. And what we do is we also take that same data and we just display it in three dimensions. So let's say you were standing at a patient's bedside and working. What we could do is just float the hologram of their heart at eye level so that you're looking at that, within that hologram, what you can see are the catheters that you're threading through the vessels and through the various chambers in the heart, moving around in real time. The latency or the drag in this system is super low, well, well below 100 milliseconds, which we think is critically important to be a real-time intra-procedural tool. And so it's, it really does have this this feeling of being science fiction. We're very grateful to have been able to do the first clinical study here at Washington University and present that data um, internationally. And it's now in publication, so it'll be released, I think, in the next 10 days, um, electronically, widely available. Well, again, I, I would encourage people to go on your website and it's S-E-N-T-I-A-R.com. And you also say on the website, there's a quote um, that you say, every time you, you see one of these holograms, you learn something new about the heart's anatomy. Um, and, and that's good news for your future patients. So what do you, what do you mean? I think that so the, the kinds of procedures that I do are minimally invasive, which means that we have to use our imagination to fill in the gaps between the things we can see. So we're seeing things in two dimensions, 
but we're envisioning three-dimensional objects. And so there's a lot of mental gymnastics that goes into that. Some of that develops over time. Some people just naturally can see two-dimensional images and recreate that, the three-dimensionality in their head. We, and, and I feel like people who are really honest with themselves who do these procedures know that we interpolate a lot. And what this does is that it takes that out. It just, it shows you the actual three-dimensional data. I don't have to interpolate or imagine any of it. I can actually see it. And what's beautiful about it is that it's unique to every patient. So this comes back to this, this core principle of cardiology, which is everybody might have the same kind of lesion, but the way it manifests in you or me or in my parent, all gonna look very different. Being able to see that for the first time, it it was it gave me great pause. It really humbled me. And so I do think that we are going to be better for this the more we learn. And I think that we're learning how little we currently know. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for what you do and thinking outside the box and starting this amazing company and and being a real trailblazer. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Wiser Conversations. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Don't forget to rate our podcast. Dan English is the producer of Wiser Conversations. Join me next time as I sit down with Joy Milner and Gabby Cole, two entrepreneurs who started the Fit and Food Connection. They're providing access to healthy food, fitness classes, holistic group wellness, and really making a change in people's lives. So until then, stay well.